Our text is in your bulletin, and so you could advance one page if you're on that last song. It's Matthew 14. Matthew 14, and I'll start reading at verse 22. Matthew 14, starting at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this that occurred so long ago on this uh, wind-tossed lake. And we pray, Lord, please awaken our minds to understand it and have your Holy Spirit to awaken our spirits uh, to seize upon it and believe it. We give you thanks for all of your many gifts to us, for the fact that uh, Christ has risen and he now awaits our entry to heaven to join him. We give you thanks in his name and for the building up of his kingdom. Amen. You may be seated. This is the third and last message in a series entitled The Foolishness of Faith. The first was Noah's foolish boat, and then last week was Joshua's foolish parade, and today it's Peter's foolish step. And each message is independent, so you didn't miss anything. They all are uh, just we're pretty much hammering the same thing home. I need to acquaint you with our story, though, because it begins, of course, like all the gospel stories begin, right in the middle of everything that's going on. And if you've ever tried to understand and put together a chronological uh, understanding of all of the stories, you know how difficult that can be. It's a lot of fun, but it is not easy. And so you really have to give it your efforts. And I've tried to do that with this, and uh, we'll see if I can tell it coherently. But first, I want to talk to you about what's been happening in recent weeks leading up to this night. A few weeks ago, prior to this night, Jesus had commissioned his 12 apostles, and he had granted them authority over demons and sicknesses. 
and he had then dispatched them across the countryside. They had gone out most likely for a few weeks healing people, casting demons out of people, and then they had returned to him. And they were jazzed. They were very excited about what had been going on. About that same time as they returned, Jesus learned that John the Baptist had been martyred. And so those things in combination with one another, I think, led Christ to say, let us go to a deserted place because it was said that the disciples couldn't even find time to eat. They were so inundated in people. Because, see, now Jesus' ministry is beginning to multiply. And so it's not just him that's doing this healing and this casting out of demons. He's got these helpers. So now people are coming from all over, and Jesus wants them to be taken away to a desert place to get some rest. But thousands of people follow them there. And so they are now familiar with where Jesus hangs out. So the multitudes follow him there, and Jesus, having compassion on them, taught them, healed them, fed them. He tells Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip complained, saying, you know, even if we had all this money and we couldn't go find all this food and bring it back. So then he had them sit in groups of 50 and fed them. It said in Matthew, 5,000 men were fed, but there were also a lot of women and children. So they were on the northeast, the northeast corner of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and this is where he had hoped to go to this desert place to find a quiet time to rest and be restored, and yet it didn't happen. So all these people show up. And not only do they all show up, but when he's fed them, like 10,000 plus of them, they are amazed. And they want to make him a king. He ends that, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later. He nips that in the bud. He makes his disciples get in the boat. He sends them off. They're to go to the other side, the, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And he then goes into the mountains right behind where this desert place is near Bethsaida to pray. But it's the middle of the night, it's the third watch of the night, and the wind is preventing his disciples from sailing this very brief distance. It's only like four or five miles that they were to go around and land on the northwest shore. But the wind has been blowing against them, contrary to them, all night. And Jesus sees them straining at the rowing, and so he goes walking to them on the sea. Now... What's interesting to me is that the Gospels seem so much alike. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem so much alike outwardly. But they differ quite a bit. Even within the same stories, they differ quite a bit. All three uh, uh, comment on the, uh, the multitude being fed. Actually, John includes it as well. So all four comment on the 5,000 being fed. But this story of Jesus walking on the water, the one that I started reading to you, that is not in Luke. So Luke does not talk about Jesus walking on the water. So he comes to them. They see him coming. They're scared to death. They are scared witless. They scream. They scream like girls. And he comforts them immediately. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
So Matthew records Peter walking on the water. Only Matthew does. And only John records the boat's miraculous arrival on the shore as soon as uh, Jesus and Peter get on the boat. Now, some of you have a second handout. Uh, I had made the original handout, and I forgot there's a blank side to the other side of the paper, and I should have put the other thing on the other side. But so some of you have a reading, what I have entitled a synoptic representation of Jesus walking on the sea. I'm going to read that now. Most of you won't have it, so I apologize. But what this does is it knits together Matthew, Mark, and John. And it's not always easy to do that, but I feel it's beneficial, especially when you're telling a tale from the Gospels. It's really helpful to see everything all at once. So I'm going to reread this. It will sound very familiar to what I read, but there are some nuances. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he insisted his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking in the sea. And when the disciples all saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Immediately the boat came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. Now I wanted to give you that kind of combined reading and then I will work from that throughout the remainder of the sermon. If you want to, you can jump around the parallel texts or Matthew 14 where we are, Mark 6 and John 6. So that's easy. Mark and John both in chapter 6. Now Luke 9 also has the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and I'll talk a little bit about that. So now, I mentioned that the people, these thousands and thousands of people who went all the way out into this deserted area to be with Jesus were ecstatic after they'd been fed. The text not only says that they ate, they ate to the full, they gorged themselves on this food. And it was five loaves of bread and two fish. And thousands of people ate and 12 baskets of leftovers were collected. It's obviously a miracle. The people were euphoric, and I think for a few reasons. First, Jesus and the 12 disciples had been healing them of serious sicknesses, serious demon demonic possession for weeks and months now. I mean, this is not something you see every day. Jesus also was very outspoken against the religious 
rulers of his day. He did not fear them, and he spoke having authority, nor did he fear the, the uh, political authorities of his day. He didn't go out of his way to attack them, but he did not fear them. And so the people were emboldened by this. Now, he's fed 10,000 of them in the middle of nowhere, and they want to make him king. They're going to start the procession right now. And so Jesus has to nip this in the bud. I believe his 12 disciples were right there with him. They wanted him to be king too. This is why they joined him. So Jesus diffused the situation, and what I'd read to you, that combined text, I inserted a word, and I hope you forgive me, but I took a word that is not in the original. It says that Jesus made them get in the boat, but the, the use of that word implies that he insisted they get in that boat. He had to force them to go. They wanted to stay desperately, but he needed them to go so he could deal with the people. So he made them go. So now they've gone, and what does he do? He deals with the crowd. He had wanted to come over here to give his disciples rest, right? They were exhausted, but yet now they're caught up in this euphoria. And anybody who's talked with Phil after he's had no sleep at night knows he gets a little punchy on a little bit of sleep. Things, he's pretty funny when he has very little sleep. So I like talking to Phil in the mornings after. And so these disciples were caught up in this euphoria, and they're running on empty in terms of energy. Jesus says, you guys got to get out of here. Now, what's interesting about this? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Talk about that later. But so they're gone. Now he sends the multitude away. They don't want to go either. But you know... If you have it in your heart to make someone king, the first thing you really ought to start doing is obeying them. And so I think they are impressed by the fact that he's giving us orders. We want him to be king. Let's obey him. So they disperse. They're gone. Thousands of people disappear into the night. And then what does he do? He absents himself as well, and he goes up into the hillside to pray. So now he's gone up into the hillside to pray, and he's up there for hours. We are often, I think, too busy or consider ourselves too busy to pray. But Jesus was often too busy not to pray. Significant difference. The circumstances are the same. Busy, busy, busy. But the busier Jesus became, the more time he set aside to pray even if it meant going without sleep, even if it meant he's up in the middle of the night, up in a mountain, praying. And so we ought to take that lesson from Jesus. We are never too busy to pray. We always ought to pray because we're busy. We might not be able to carve the time out of the most convenient time slots in our day. In that case, we need to do it in the middle of the night like Jesus did. We are always to pray, right? Scripture says we are always to pray. But 
I believe we are especially to pray, and I think the Bible bears this out, we are especially to pray about important life decisions. Jesus modeled this for us. Let me give you three examples. First, Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days when he entered into his ministry. Before entering into his public ministry, he fasted for 40 days, giving the devil opportunity to test him, to tempt him, to try him. He had to overcome that in order to then be the effective minister that he became. You might not be aware of this, but the night before he chose his 12 apostles, he was up all night in prayer. He wanted to make wise decisions about these 12 men that he was selecting. He had many disciples, many, many disciples, no shortage there. But he chose those 12 after a night of prayer. And then, before his death, he obviously prayed for hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he prayed before special occasions, before special events in his life, before his crucifixion, for strength. Now, that night, he went to pray, and let me give you three things that I think he prayed about. I can't be sure, of course, but I think he would pray for these. First was these, were these winds that were preventing the apostles from reaching shore. I think he prayed that the winds would keep his apostles from reaching the shore. He was wearing them out. He took them over to get rest, and here they are joining the crowd to make him king? No, no, no. That's not the way it works. I'll show you how it works. So he gets them in the boat, sends them out into the lake, and then just keeps the wind blowing them away from shore. They're rowing and rowing and rowing, and they're getting further away from shore. I believe he was praying that that would happen, that they would be kept away from shore like that, wear them out. But he's also praying for his upcoming walk across the lake. He has to walk three or four miles to get to them. And I believe he's also praying about what's coming the next day because I believe that next day is very special because he is going to give in Capernaum, in the Capernaum synagogue, the bread of heaven sermon. And he's going to kill people's dreams of making him a king. So he's praying about that. So now, in our text, we don't see something that I read to you. And let me read it to you in my combined text. Those of you that have the combined text, you'll see it too. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, it doesn't say exactly where Jesus was. Was he still up in the hill? Was he still in the midst of his prayer? Had he come down to the shore? Was he seeing them from the shore? Was he actually walking towards them by this time? It doesn't appear that he's walking towards them at that time, because then it goes on to say he walks toward them. But they're miles away, and so I'm not sure that this Jesus seeing them is an actual physical seeing them. It could be that he's seeing them in his spirit, in his mind's eye. As God, he's seeing them and what is going on with them. 
I'm not sure, but that is just a possibility. And so he goes walking. They likely left before dark because in the text it appears that it didn't get dark until after they'd gone. And so you're probably talking 7 p.m. It's the third watch of the night, which means it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they've probably been on the water now for at least seven hours, maybe seven or more hours. And so they're getting worn out. So he walks towards them. He walks for miles. They spot him. They scream. They are afraid. I mean, they think this is some bizarre, demonic being. Why would they think it's Jesus? They've never seen Jesus walking on the water. They saw him calm the storm. Remember when he was asleep on the boat earlier, maybe weeks or months earlier, he was dead fast asleep, and they woke him up, and he calmed the storm, and they said to themselves, what manner of man is this that he can calm the storm? But so now he's walking towards them, and they think it's a ghost. The Greek word is phantasm. We use that in our language, phantasm. It's ghost, this, this alternate type of being from another dimension. But as I said, he was very quick to assure them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. He wants them to know that he loves them, that he cares for them. But Peter is not content to merely see Jesus. Only Matthew records Peter and this whole episode. Mark and John don't comment on it. And like I said, Luke doesn't comment on Jesus walking on the water. But so Matthew records Peter and what had transpired between him and Jesus. Now, there is a popular book. It was written by a famous pastor now who's in one of these big emergent churches out in Menlo Park. And it was, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. I don't know if, I'm sure it's all in all your libraries. And uh, I was actually quite, I was looking that up and I was pleased to see that they just left the PCUSA. They went into some new denomination that's been formed that's perhaps somewhat less liberal than the PCUSA. But this pastor out there in Menlo Park, their, ha their church has to sacrifice $9 million to buy their way out of the PCUSA. See, because that's what happened with the OPC and the PCA. I don't know if you know this. The, the United Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, owned all of the properties, kind of like the Roman Catholic Church owns all Roman Catholic properties. So they did not let the OPC or the PCA form easily. A lot of those churches had to give up property in order to do what it is that, to get their freedom from the PCUSA. And so this church has done the same thing with John Ortberg as their made head pastor. But anyway, that as an aside, all I wanted to remark on, though, is that people emphasize... Peter in this illustration, and they emphasize his doubts. And that's understandable. Jesus himself rebukes Peter for his doubts. And so we ought not uh, think that uh, Peter ought not be criticized for his doubts, because Jesus criticized them. But I'm certainly not going to pile on Peter and criticize him, because I don't think I would have gotten out of the boat. I'm pretty much a chicken I don't even like getting wet. It's like, ew. I'm, I, I'd probably be hunkered down somewhere trying to prevent the water spray from getting me wet. But so I am impressed, however, with Peter 
Peter wants to be with Jesus. What did Peter say to Jesus? It's not, I think, what you would expect him to have said. What did he say? In verse 28, Jesus had just said, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Command me to come to you on the water. He doesn't ask permission to come to Jesus on the water. He asks Jesus to command him to come to him on the water. And so why would he say it like that? Uh, some people vary in their opinions of this, of course. Um, one had said that perhaps Peter was showing off. He's wanting to uh, show all the other apostles that he's braver than them, more courageous than them, and we would all perhaps say more stupid than them. I don't know. Some people would think that way. Another pastor that I admire a lot said he believes Peter was afraid. And so he was afraid being in the boat, and so he wanted to be with Jesus where he would not be afraid. I really don't see that either. They'd been afraid until Jesus had said, be of good cheer, it is I do not be afraid. I don't think Peter's afraid then, but he wants to be with Jesus. I think of Peter as like a, a faithful Labrador dog. You know, labs will jump to their death to try to get to their master. I mean, they just love their master. So, Peter is in this boat. It's a typical fishing boat, probably on the Sea of Galilee. It's maybe 25, 30 feet long. It's about eight feet wide. It has one or two sails, and they didn't really use the sails uh, for a lot unless they happened to want to go fast. They're rowing. But it would be about three feet high. So, I mean, it's not exactly an easy boat to get in and out of, but... Peter, being a fisherman, I'm sure has a lot of experience getting in and out of boats. A whole bunch of us would probably have difficulty getting in our boats. It's really tough. You see a lot of funniest home videos where people get getting in and out of boats, and it doesn't go so well. But here, Peter, it says, verse 29, so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. One of my commentaries says, oh, you can't believe that Peter walked on the water. That isn't at all what the Greek text says. What does it say then? You know, it's just, when you look at the Greek text, it appears to say that he walked on the water. That's what all of our translations say. He walked on the water. He'd had to step over the side. And what would you do? What would you do if you're trying to get out of... This is three feet high. I'm trying to step over, and you're going to watch where your foot goes, right? I mean, that's what we do when we step over things. We watch where our foot goes. But I don't believe Peter did that. I have never watched the Jesus movie. Have, has anybody watched the Jesus movie? I assume it's worthy of watching. I don't know. They've used it all over the world for missionary activities. I've never watched it. Apparently, no one here has watched it or willing to admit it. But I've now watched three minutes of it, 
And so when I did my search, I found that on YouTube they have these little clips of the Jesus movie, and the one was about Peter walking on the water. So I thought, oh, this should be interesting. And it appears to be fairly well made, and they, of course, go a little further than Scripture. But what I liked about it, though, was they showed... Now, the Bible, I don't think, says there's a storm. It says there's a strong wind, waves, yes, but I'm not sure that it's raining. I don't see that, but I don't... You can't be certain. But so in, the, in this clip, they see Jesus, they all exclaim, just like it says, Peter, they're showing him, and he's mesmerized. And so then he steps out of the boat, but they don't show. They show his foot going down, but then they cut away, like movies can do. And then they just show him staring intently at Jesus. And then they show him start to move towards Jesus, never really showing his feet until they want to show you where he loses his attention. He looks away from Jesus, and then he starts sinking. Peter, I think, in reality, I think they portrayed that really well. Peter was so focused on Christ and so focused on wanting to be near Christ that he did just get out of the boat without looking. He's a fisherman. We all would, look, would pay attention where we're going, but he's a, he's a fisherman. He's used to this boat, in, out, in, out, in, out. He's out. He's walking. And he's only looking at Jesus. And so he's not really concerned about what he's walking on. He's walking on the water. He doesn't know that at this point, I don't believe. But then his eyes are drawn away. He notices the wind is strong, the waves are high, and he looks away from Christ, and then he starts sinking. I don't think he had any fears or doubts until that moment when reality intruded and his focus was lost. And then he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out, and you have the, the perception that Jesus reaches out and physically lifts him up to remain above the water, and then they go above the water, walk on the water to the boat. And Peter is probably again walking on the water, although now it's with Christ holding him. I want to move to the next day briefly. I want to come back to this in a little bit, but I want to move to the next day and uh, share something with you, and I, and I want to come back then and close this out. John 6. In John 6, starting at verse 22, and I'm going to read a lot to you. I'll try to read it in little snippets and tell you why I'm reading it. John 6, 22. On the following day, now this is just later on. This was in the in the last watch, right? It was between 3 and 6 a.m., but now it's light out. It says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples... They also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, now listen to this. What did they ask him? I love Jesus. I wish I could do this. People ask him a question and he doesn't answer them. He always says something different. And often he'll ask them a question instead of answering their question. I just answer questions. I'm just so simple-minded. But so Jesus answered them and said, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So see, now they're trying to, I think they're beginning to barter. They want to keep the conversation going. Jesus has really shut them down. I mean, he's told them, you are not here for the right reason. All you want is free food. What must we do? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform? They're asking for more signs. See, they're trying to trick him into giving me more food. I want more food. I want breakfast now. You gave me dinner last night. What other sign are you going to do? I think they want breakfast myself. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, that is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they say, give us this bread always. See, they don't want breakfast anymore. They want all their future meals from Jesus. And then he goes on and he gives these sermons. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained because he had said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Contempt. Now they have contempt for Christ. When he was giving them free food, they couldn't care less where it was coming from. But now that he's telling them, I am the bread of heaven, believe in me, they're like, no, no, I just want free stuff. Doesn't this remind you of something in our age? We don't want God. We just want stuff. We like the stuff God has given us, but we don't want this God to rule over us. We just want to enjoy the world he's created for us. They're saying the very same thing. Jesus said to them, Do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I am the bread of life. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, boy, he's really drilling it into these poor Jews. You just have to feel bad for them. And they're like, ugh, ugh, you're disgusting me. Of course, he's speaking spiritually, but yet they haven't a clue. They haven't a clue why he's hammering on this. What is he doing? 
He wants to disgust them. He wants to drive them away because they're not here for the right reason. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. He said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. He has alienated all of these people because he's speaking so just grotesquely of them having to eat his body and drink his blood. They don't know who he is. They don't care who he is. They just want what he can give them. And he drives them away. See, that's what I meant. He has driven a stake in the heart of this movement that these people have to make him their king. No, I'm not going to be your puppet. I'm not here to provide you free meals and freedom from the Romans. So he drives them away. Now let's go on. In verse 67, then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Now, in this bunch of people that were following him, there were what were called methetes. They were disciples. They'd been following him for a long time. They loved what he was saying. They loved what he was teaching. But this went too far. And this is what Jesus said to them. Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When did Peter decide that Jesus was God, that he was the Christ? It was the very night before. It was just hours earlier. Let me return to that. I, I skipped a few thoughts back then because I wanted to come to this, this sermon that he gave the very next day in Capernaum, because I want to take you back now to that night in the boat and finish what we had started. So in Matthew 14, in verse 29, well, let me start earlier. Let me, start, let me read from verse 28 on. This is where I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked out of the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. <clears throat> As I said earlier, the miracle 
of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. It's amazing. There were so many miracles, and you see so many of them, but the Gospels don't all have them. The only other miracle that is in every Gospel is the resurrection of Christ. So the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection of Christ, there are only those two miracles. Why? Why would all the apostles, all the writers of the Gospels include those two events? Well, we know the resurrection. I mean, that's incredible. Why the feeding of the 5,000? I believe it's because it's this day that the disciples, the apostles most remember because they all came to the knowledge of the Lord that day. Listen to how it goes. In our combined reading, because I'm pulling from all three of the, of the narratives that comment on this, Peter said, if it is you, command me to come to you in the water. He said, come. And Peter had come down out of the boat. He walked on the water. He begins sinking. He says, Lord, save me. Jesus stretches out his hand. Then they get into the boat, and the wind ceased. Then let me read this. They were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves. See, just earlier, there was the miracle of the loaves. The apostles all here now are sharing their understanding that they had not understood about the loaves. Their heart was hardened. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Two things there are important. They came and worshipped him, and they said, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the first time that's happened. Remember what I mentioned earlier when Jesus had calmed the storm? What is it that they had said when Jesus had calmed the storm? What did they say to one another? They didn't say it to Jesus. They said, who is this man? Who is this man? That even the wind and the waves obey him. I believe Peter was saved on the water. He said, if that's you, Lord, command me to come to you. Jesus said, come. So he gets out there, his faith fails him, and Jesus saves him when he cries out, Lord, save me. Then he gets onto the boat, and the others marvel beyond measure, and they comment on the fact that they had not understood earlier that day about the loaves. They've seen him perform so many miracles, and yet their heart was hardened, it says. Because their heart was hardened, they had not understood. But now, now they understand. With the loaves, they were right there with the crowd wanting Christ to be made king. Just wanting to use him for this incredible gift he had of producing food out of thin air. They never worshipped. They never worshipped him until that time. 
But now in the boat, when he's walked on the water and he brings Peter back, I believe they all come to saving faith. Because he needs them to have saving faith. That's why the very next day he says, will you leave also? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the son of God. He might as well have said, we don't understand what you're doing. We thought you did, but we're confused. But we're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. We're remaining here with you because you have the words of eternal life. So see, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that uh, we experience this foolishness of faith, and we all know that that's foolishness from the perspective of those on the earth that don't know the Lord. And so that's why I entitled the first message, uh, Noah's Foolish Boat. Who needed a boat when it never rains? It's ridiculous to build a boat when it never rains. It's ridiculous to attack a fortified city by yelling at its walls. It's ridiculous. That's exactly what God did. He had Noah build a boat when there was no need of a boat and hadn't been for 1,600 years. And then he had Joshua lead this huge army against a fortified city, stop and yell at it. So see, we talk about the foolishness of Peter's step and obviously, what's implied when I titled it was Peter's first step, when he stepped out of the boat. In, con in remaining consistent with the foolishness theme from the world's perspective, all that's foolishness. But I believe that this title can have a double meaning. So see, Peter's foolish step isn't the first step. It's the step after... He stopped looking at Christ. That was the foolish step because then he was stepping out in his own power and he stepped into loss. He stepped into a drowning situation. And yet, we all enter this earth lost and in this drowning situation. We all must rely upon God saving us, commanding us, come. And yet, note what Peter said prior to that even though, Lord, if that is you, command me to come to you. He wanted Christ to command him. He pled with him to do it, and he did. And I believe he was saved. And they were all saved. Of course, we know that I say all tongue-in-cheek because who's in the boat? Judas is in the boat. But yet those that came to faith, I believe, came to faith then because the very next day they're all with Peter saying, no, we can't leave. You're the son of God. We don't understand you, but we're going to remain faithful to you. So let's keep our eyes upon Jesus and let's not make any foolish steps. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness to us, for drawing us close to yourself. We thank you for the truth of your word that makes us uh, aware of who you are and so precious to us, uh, not for the good that you can do in this world and the many gifts that you provide, but for who you are, for the fact that you are God, worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be adored. Uh, we thank you, Father. Uh, you have awakened us to our need of you 
and we praise you for that. Lord, if there are those here that are unaware of their need of you, I pray that you would awaken their foolish hearts, that you would uh, cast them uh, your hand and save them uh, from their loss. We ask you now, Lord, to be with us, to uh, allow us to continue to enjoy this wonderful resurrection day. Uh, we give you thanks, Father, for the wisdom of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit to apply it in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.